Hello and welcome to Blight Stories in the Key of Decay and Repair. I am Sean Williamson. First, I want to extend a huge thanks to everyone who attended the Blight Record Project release party in early March at Music Church. It was one of my favorite things I've ever been a part of. Everyone involved was so pumped on the show and we can't wait to do it again. The Blight Record Project produces adaptations of contemporary short stories printed to vinyl and limited run. The debut full-length split features Angel of Death by Brian Evanson and A Skull Dreams It Is a Horse by Ashley May. Both stories are scored and composed by Nathaniel Hoyer and the band Hello Death. The first story on our show today is one I wrote while I was living in Ridgewood and studying with Joanne Beard in 2019. This story and a handful of other stories I've written came from an assignment of sitting in your room and free writing whatever came to mind for five minutes. In this time, my mind would attach to the traffic outside my apartment, the sound of my neighbors' voices, then drift into memory of the days I spent with my two sons while Heather was at work. Here is one of those memories. Memorial on Woodward. At the intersection of Woodward and Green, outside the meat market where the man ran his crotch rocket into the light pole, a crowd was gathered. Some were wailing while others held each other and still others hung their heads. We watched them from across the street. The memorial was on our route between Karate and the park. I pushed Sawyer in the tattered umbrella stroller, dragged Theodore when he lagged behind. The first week after the crash, we saw them every day. A woman with permed hair and tight jeans, holding a tissue to her mouth. His girlfriend, I thought. Sometimes a boy, who looked just like the man in the photo stapled to the pole, stood off to the side. He looked up at the memorial, photos of his father, gone now. Flowers snaked up the light pole to heaven. Later, when no one was around, we got closer. Would walk across the street. Would think of touching the candle wax that pooled in the glass box taped to the pole that ran in tiny beads from a break in the seal. It was a Virgin Mary candle. I'd think about the factory pumping out the Virgin Mary candles how assembly line workers smoked cigarettes on peeling picnic benches outside the factory in an industrial park somewhere in the middle of nowhere, how the workers drank bags of Skittles while they boxed. What is it, Dad? Theodore said, pointing at the memorial. It's something that was made for a man who died, I said. Later in the season, we stopped at the memorial and I rubbed my thumb on the back of Theodore's hand. Whoever was keeping up the memorial had fallen behind. Plastic flowers had been scuffed off the pole and littered the ground. Rain had streaked the ink from the printed photos of the dead man, smiling with precise facial hair, holding his son in a moment that was buzzing somewhere else. It was a lot of work to keep up a memorial. No one could be blamed for falling behind. Years before, but not many years before, I was high, driving at night on I-80 West. It was winter, and empty cornfields stretched into a boring pitch-black sea. Where was the moon, I wondered. 
but near Joplin, Iowa, there was another light. As I approached, a memorial just beyond the guardrail, flowers and a cross illuminated by a tiny spotlight. Then in a blink, it was gone, retreating in my rear view. For hours I drove and ground my teeth and thought of the mother or father or lover who walked down the highway each month to the spot where their hearts had been thrashed clear of meaning, fallen to their knees and replaced the batteries on the spotlight. Who made this? Theodore asked with his head tilted up at the memorial. He flicked a big curl out of his face, then tugged on his sweatshorts. Sawyer jerked in his stroller seat because we were stopped. The tape was pulling and fraying on the memorial, and as we walked away I figured it was only a matter of days until the whole thing collapsed. But the next time we walked by, Halloween pumpkins were set out. Later, Christmas streamers wrapped around the pole, red, green, white, silver. Later, strands of hearts on Valentine's Day. Teddy bears were beaten by the rain and then replaced. When the spring came, there were new flowers. There were new photos. A new Virgin Mary candle. The memorial rebloomed again and again. The next story is from one of my favorite writers and 7th to 10th best friend, Harris Lotze. Here is a bit from a story I wrote about attending Harris's wedding. When David Ryan set us up on a blind date, Harris was just some fucking goof in front of Heimbold with sawdust in his hair. It was pointed out later to me that Harris was handsome, which made sense. His father was a successful actor, having starred in a George Romero film in the 80s. His mother ran a school for little kids and was amazing and perfect. And later at the wedding, we all laughed about how much we loved her and how perfect she was. What the fuck, we all said. Can you believe how lovely Harris's mom is? Harris Lottie's fiction has appeared in New York Tyrant, Bomb, Sleeping Fish, Hobart, Ninth Letter, Epiphany, and elsewhere. He edits fiction for Fence and Post Road and paints houses for a living in New York's Hudson Valley. Here's Harris. Roughneck. After a minor search, I find the folders in the cabinet next to the Pop-Tarts. And despite it being forbidden by Rule 3 on the list my brother has magneted to the refrigerator, I also take a Pop-Tart. On the piece of computer paper, his handwriting, medium size and official looking, becomes increasingly cramped toward the bottom, where additional rules have been made and amended. Squinting, I peel the Pop-Tart's silver foil wrapper. I chew with my mouth shut. Rule seven, unplug power strip before putting coffee on. And today I decide to honor this rule despite a nearly overwhelming impulse not to do it at all. Even if the breaker is certain to pop and kill the electricity to my essential space heater, 
the back porch where I live, a thin square of storm windows and particle boards with no insulation or electric to speak of. And with the recent cold snap, I'm barely getting by on my jerry-rigged power strip I snake under the door. And yet I have the knee-jerk to say no. No, I will not unplug the power strip, Wade, just because he took the time to put the list up there telling me not to, like I'd forget. The coffee maker gurgles and chokes off a series of black drips that plink into the dead center of the glass pot. I notice some grinds on the counter and fleck them to the floor with the edge of my hand. I think, you're welcome, Wade. Because when Wade's not poring over his textbooks or drinking coffee like it's beer, he's a practicing Swiffer Grandmaster, a decorated bombardier general of tidiness, in fact. In a lot of ways, there's philanthropy in my messiness. If it weren't for him, there would be no more dirt left to get, no more practice. Then his skills would dissolve and he'd get out dusted somewhere down the line. No kidding. He's an aspiring paleontologist, my brother. Somebody over at the college lets him head a dig on the floodplains out in Schoharie over summers. Wade invited me out once, and my ex-girlfriend Catherine insisted we go. I remember Wade wore this dumb hat, think Indiana Jones turned rice farmer, and was wildly excited to give us the tour of the work site's few shallow holes, at least at first, because not two minutes in, one of his crane-necked underlings unearthed something, and all hell broke loose. After that, Wade basically forgot we were there, but the mosquitoes sure didn't. Those suckers were billowing off the Mohawk River in bloodthirsty clouds. Turned out the excitement was over an ancient Indian bead. It only really looked like a pebble to me, but who am I to say? Wade wouldn't even let me hold it. When the coffee is done, I go and call up to Wade's office, which is really only the attic. And of course, his answer is what? Because did I mention my voice is totally useless? especially in the mornings, but mostly always useless. It's not from the boozing or smoking or singing along with vocally abrasive lyrics either, like you might think. It's just how it was born, with a voice as gruff as a gargoyle's. My brother got brains, and I a mouthful of marbles. But Rule 9 does state, inform Wade whenever a fresh pot is done, so I clear my throat and try again. This time he answers. Coffee? Yes, please, he says. Just make sure you unplug the power strip before you start the pot. But then I hear his feet pounding toward the stairs like I'm going to forget the power strip anyway. Wade will stay up for days, sequestered in the attic, thumbing books and grinding his teeth away on Adderall, waiting for me to call up with a fresh pot. Wade enters the kitchen, pale as lemon sherbet with bloodshot eyes. I aim a cup of coffee into his quaking hand and he can't help but note the bewildering similarities between our skin tones. Turns out, between the little gaps in my tattoos, I'm milk toast pale too. It calls for alarm, really. People always say we're identical, my brother and me, but people say a lot of things and I never saw it. You could also say he's squintier. Picture somebody who's been reading small print in the dark for too long. I've been worried about you, he tells me after a long black gulp of coffee. What was all that yelling about last night? That yelling. Night before, my cell phone rang, and out of the blue, here comes Catherine back into my life. Her voice sounded like somebody rushing to the side of a hospital bed. Harold, what happened? If you don't know already, you wouldn't be calling, I had told her. And I was going to leave it there, but then she baited me with the silent act, and I started up again. Well, if you're going to be an absolute ghoul about it, yes, it all happened exactly like you've undoubtedly heard already. I almost killed the geezer. 
Guy like that had no business working security at a price chopper. Thought he had World War II muscles or something. Spry enough to call me a punk, but too old and fragile to deal with the repercussions. His badge was barely laminated, Catherine, and he swung first. Yes, it's true, I beat the elderly. Don't joke like that, she told me. Catherine was always trying to teach me jokes work differently for girls. How she wasn't one of my dumb shit friends. We've been working on that. But it wasn't her place anymore. Before I could set her straight, she added, I still care about you, Harold. Just like that, I still care. But that was the other thing. Catherine cared about everything and everybody. It pissed me off. There was no hierarchy in her heart. Nevertheless, hearing these words, it set off some wildly romantic impulse. I thought some miracle was occurring. There's that place down in Central, I heard myself saying. That Italian place you always talked about. Harold, please, was all she said. And let me tell you, hearing that, I've had my fair share of experiences with LSD and magic mushrooms. But there's nothing more hallucinogenic as the emotion of jealousy, because right then, when she declined my offer, it was too much to bear. I saw that other man, an image of the materialized right before me, him whispering in her ear while rubbing her shoulders in support of her holy kindness, her shushing him with a pink cheek. I saw it all too clearly. There wasn't a doubt in my mind. I couldn't help but shout, who the fuck is there with you, Catherine? But of course, I tell my brother none of this. If I tried, the words wouldn't come out right. All I'd hear is a blender pureeing wet hamburger. Nobody on planet Earth except Catherine could ever understand a word out of my mouth the first time around without cupping their ears. So I keep it simple. I tell them, nothing at all, but even this is too garbled. I'm sorry, Harold, I didn't catch that, he says. Nothing, Wade. What? Poo-poo caca, I say. Uh-huh, he replies absently, noticing the coffee grinds. I see. Digging in the closet for the Swiffer, Wade asks if I'm planning on going out today, if that's what I'm doing. News said it's going to be nice for a change, he says, wiggling his eyebrows, trying to sell me on the idea, like he's doing me a favor. Then he slides the Swiffer over the coffee grinds and takes a moment to marvel at his favorite toy's efficiency. Well, he says, would you like some company? And that's when I realize Wade's worried I'm going to skip bail. I can't remember the last time he's willingly left the house, the attic for that matter. What kind of derelict does he think I am, skipping bail? Screw his thousand bucks, I think. I'm skipping bail, I'll show him to make assumptions. But then I count to ten. Like Catherine used to say, and when I finish counting, I manage a shrug and affect, if not brotherly love, at least brotherly tolerance. It actually works, too, the counting. Before I can even finish shrugging, Wade downs the rest of his coffee and says, Just let me grab my coat. I need some smokes anyway. And I have to start counting all over again. Snowmelt is gushing in little rivers through the gutters down the slope of Madison Avenue toward the Hudson River. You couldn't even step off the curb if you were seven feet tall and lanky, so rapid. As we walk with the current toward the stewards, my brother jabbers about the tulip beds, which as mucky as they are, have already sprouted a few green hairs. Tulipa genesaria, he calls them. This is why you got beat up in high school, I tell him. But he doesn't catch a word. He's roving ahead of me like a dog. At the steward's counter, a lip-ring girl in a maroon-collared shirt sells my brother three packs of Camel cigarettes and a 32-ounce coffee, which he drinks most of before paying. She looks a little like Catherine, around the blue eyes. How much for a strawberry milkshake, I ask her. 
And when she cocks her ear at me, not hearing, I say, never mind. But then she just cocks the other one. Outside by the ice machine, Wade chucks out two cigarettes. When the smoke hits, my throat it knocks some gravel loose and I double over coughing. Are you okay? Wade asks me, reaching for my shoulder. At his touch, I straighten, take a smaller, more cautionary drag and blow smoke in his face to show him that yes, I am okay. But even this, he doesn't seem to understand. Here, Wade's face grows concerned and I begin to fear he might attempt to do something personal. Something like, no, Harold, how are you really doing? How are you adjusting to life sans Catherine, with the possibility of jail looming in the future, living with me, your mildly autistic brother? But instead, all he does is take another gulp of coffee and start talking about the extinction of the dinosaurs. They didn't go extinct like they say, you know, he says. It wasn't a meteor strike that did it at all. Leading paleontologists theorize that it was a lack of a taste aversion that killed them off. That since the dinosaur biology likely lacked the mechanism to properly differentiate between what was safety and what was poisonous, the herbivores probably feasted endlessly on poisonous vegetation without having the sense to spit it out. They never learned to avoid it, Harold. That's the point. It made them toxic. And then the carnivores ate them up, in turn poisoning themselves, and so on and so forth, until the poison had worked its way entirely up the food chain, until there was nothing left of the dinosaurs but bones. He says that last bit like it didn't happen a million years ago, like it only happened yesterday. Then he takes a deep pull from his cigarette and continues. But humans are different, he says. Along with insight and self-awareness, they have taste aversions. And this is where I lose him. We walk on. As Wade prattles on, I see a crack, another crack, a crumpled beer can and an oblong puddle with a knotted used condom settled at the bottom. A dad and his kid in church car are coming up the sidewalk, and as they pass, the dad touches his son. A protective impulse, I realize. This is why people never let me pet their dogs or goo goo their babies, I think. This must be why Catherine left me. Then Wade's touching me again. Do you understand, Harold, he says. Do you see what I'm saying? Yes, Wade, I say. I see what you're saying. Good, he says. I'm glad. That's important, Harold. It's crucial to be able to make these connections. It's what makes us homo sapiens, wise men. Passing an old gabled church, I notice a gas puff of graffiti on its white clapboard siding. There are more tulip beds. Up ahead, a CDTA bus stops at a depot for a tattered-looking woman who doesn't acknowledge the bus in the slightest, and the bus drives on. And then Wade's touching me again. He's doing it, touching me, and wagging his gigantic coffee cup in my face. Harold, he says, I gotta pee. A bag in the wind, an urban tumbleweed. A cloud moves across the bright midday sun. A shrug. I have to pee, he says again, staring at me now. I know, I say, slowing to stop him. I heard you. At this, he scratches his bald spot at me. Harold, I really have to urinate, and I'm beginning to worry. Here's where I throw up my hands. Here's where I start back up toward the apartment, our walk finished, but he's frozen in place and doesn't follow. I'll never make it, he calls after me. When I turn, his eyes are darting around for a public bathroom. It's Sunday, I tell him. Nothing happens in Albany on Sunday besides church and brunch. He doesn't compute, though. Only the bald spot again, more scratching. Fine, I say. Uh, okay, uh, that's where I go. And I point to the closest alleyway. 
At first his look is skeptical, then to my surprise off he goes at a waddle. I couldn't help but feel a small measure of satisfaction at that. For a moment I considered leaving him there, wedged there between the brick and the dumpster, but something about the way his head keeps darting over his shoulder turns me soft. Back in high school, Wade used to refuse to use the public facilities out of a pure stage fright, and apparently he hasn't overcome that particular anxiety. I can't go, he informs me. Not here, at least. Then, after he teaches me the word periusis, the intense fear of public urination, the whole thing turns into this episode of Goldilocks and the Three Bears. The spot's too public. There's a cat staring at me from the window. The dumpster behind Jewel of India smells like a corpse. You'd never understand, he tells me as we approach a co-ed in slippers out on her stoop. When I ask her if we can use her bathroom and tell her it was a periusis type emergency, she tells me that her dog was vicious. Straight Cujo, I think were her words. We could have been home already, I try to tell him, but even if I had the voice of an angel, Wade wouldn't understand. He's completely deaf from pressure in the bladder. All he wants is to do is waddle. You take him away from a book or his funny hat, my brother's a complete infant. The whole thing drags on for hours. Well, okay, maybe not hours, but at least long enough for me to start losing my patience. It has its limits, you know, just like anything, a bladder, a prison sentence, a relationship, the universe. And wouldn't you know it, right as I'm about to pull the plug and just abandon ship, Right as my patience meters tilting dangerously deep into the red, Wade finds some inspiration. There, he says wistfully, as if he's found all salvation. In the distance, a small park has just reared up like some oasis. There's an alcove of square hedges with a monument poking out. On the flagpole, old glory cracks in the wind. Right behind you, I say, and then for whatever reason, I think to add, little brother, which is something I haven't done in a long time, which is also something I wouldn't be surprised to find outlawed in the smaller print of rules, Wade's list of rules. It's something he's always hated, something that's always worked on him like a well-placed kidney shot. You're three minutes older than me, he shouts over his shoulder, the exertion of which causes him to wince. I grin at this, satisfied. He waddles, stops, waddles again. Let's just get this over with, he says, with his careful mincing steps. He's basically hula-hooping, trying to keep the urine in at this point. When we reach the mouth of the square hedges, however, he stops short. Oh no. I crane over his shoulder and see, across from a bronze statue of a soldier, shouldering a rifle, a bum sleeping on the granite bench with an empty shopping cart of his duct-taped shoes, goodwill attire, pilly beanie, fingerless gloves, even a little cardboard sign scrawled in a desperate hand. He's as chiseled a representation of his kind as the bronze soldier is, this guy, a real ironweed. By the looks of him, too, he's down for the count, maybe even dead, but hey, I'm no doctor, nor a detective, but the scene does speak for itself. The empty shopping cart says it all, payday, five cents, a can, can get you enough skull to get warm and enough heroin to get well, not out, sleep like the dead, or actually be dead. Wade looks at the bum and then back at me. Yes, Wade, I see, I say, and I do see. I see that this is getting ridiculous, that something must be done here. The pained look that Wade's giving me. So I go over and poke the bum in the breast pocket of his wool trench coat, and when I look up, I make throat-slashing motions. He's dead, says Wade. Yes, definitely dead, I say, nodding. Dornell status. 
and for whatever reason this seems to soothe him. My trick works, I guess, because Wade goes over to the corner and assumes the position. Then I see his shoulders drop at least four inches and he breathes out in a whoosh. When I hear his scream, I'm almost proud. Feels good to help, Catherine used to always tell me, and it does. It feels good to help. I'm smiling, an itchy, sour, acid happiness filling my belly like my insides have licked a 9-volt battery. I'm not sure if I like this, but I guess Wade's feeling the love too. It's not too bad. I'm smiling, and he's smiling also, and I'm like, yes, yes, this is what it's all about, helping a brother out. Not too bad at all. But would you believe it if I told you that right then, right when the moment was getting nice and fuzzy and warm, a blur of something crouched and uniformed on a bike rides by? A cop. When I hear the skid, immediately I know we have a problem. I mean, let's analyze the situation here. Disregard my track record with the law, disregard my overall appearance, and it still adds up to trouble. Just give a bored cop enough to pick at. Look at Wade zipping by, look at the bum, and that's already enough to raise suspicions. Enough to pick into a wound, a conflict, a charge. To set me off and send me to jail, definitely and prematurely. Morning, officer, Wade says. But the cop doesn't respond, just stands there, leaving us to soak in his mustached presence. He's young, for sure, a rookie, no doubt. Looks bored and small, but... Works out small, like he's a big presence trapped inside of a small one. And instead of growing up, he grew out, wide, with his muscled arms built for restraining. I can see our bended reflection in the curvature of his police-issued aviator sunglasses. As he looks us over, I keep my hand in sight and attempt to exude the thoughts of an honest American citizen. I think things like apple pie, rock and roll, country, hip-hop. I think of taxes, paying taxes. I think of tits, ass, domestic beer, Bush, but not pubic Bush, George Bush Jr. and Jeb. I think of late night television, toaster ovens, and the Model T Ford, but no such luck. When the cop finally speaks, the tone is all wrong, and it's to ask us for our IDs. I manage a smile as I remove my ID from my wallet. When the cop asks if we've been enjoying the weather, I try to let Wade answer. But when he does, the cop tells him to shut it. I'm not talking to you, the cop says, swinging his sunglasses at me. Have anything to drink today, he asks, to which I shake no. You know that guy, he says, signaling to the bum? No. Any warrants? No. Oh, yeah? Yeah. We go on like that for a while, me answering each of his questions like I'm deaf, dumb, and American. And it's surprising, his response, because in the end, he actually seems satisfied. But then it's Wade's turn. Wade, who's already ingested a heavy dose of Adderall and caffeine. Wade, who's smoked countless cigarettes. Wade, the genius so focused on books and bones that the surrounding world has been rendered entirely unpredictable. His hands shake so bad it takes him a half hour to thread a needle. This isn't out of the cop's realm of observation either. You're shaking uncontrollably, he says. Indubitably, answers Wade. That's when the cop decides to run our identification. He bends his mouth to the hand radio on his shoulder and relays the contents of IDs back to the station in an incomprehensible string of letters and code. Then all of a sudden he looks back up. Here it comes, I think. Twins, he says. You're twins? Yes, identical, says Wade, nonchalantly, already reaching for his ID. 
But the cop swings the idea out of reach and glowers at him, or at least tries to, because try as he does, there seems to be an opposite polarity between their eyes. Wade cannot make and maintain eye contact. Don't see it, says the cop finally. Can we go now? Wade asks the ground. By way of answer, the cop begins toying with Wade's ID. Please don't do that, Wade says. Need to test the integrity of the identification. New York State mandate, the cop says, mastering a U-shape with the ID. Got a problem with that? And of course Wade takes this literally because sarcasm is a foreign idea to my brother. Yes, as a matter of fact, I do, he says, erupting into a frenzy of words that I cannot follow. There are a few key notes and phrases that I managed to catch, however. Words like Fourth Amendment and police brutality in Ferguson, Missouri. Then some references to New York State statutes and the English common law. And something else I'm certain is Latin. But all in all, I have to say, I have no idea what he's saying. However, there's no doubt in my mind that if you slowed down this lecture to an eighth of the speed and gave me three weeks to study it, I discovered that his words were wrapped together tightly with a jaw-dropping coherence and intellect, that he spoke the truth. Kid is a true genius. When the cop tells Wade to shut up, I'm not surprised, and Wade does so willingly, expecting the advent of some sportsman-like discussion. But at this point, the cop is as confused as I am, and like most authority figures, when presented with something as bizarre as Wade's intellect or my rough appearance, his options are limited. So he unsheathes a long black flashlight and hoists it to his shoulders. He proceeds to chase Wade's eyes with the beam. Hold still, he says. When the cop tries cupping his bald spot for stability, Wade's hands shoot up in self-defense, and that's when the cop deploys his swift takedown maneuver. Prone with the cop's knee in the small of his back, the fear wipes my brother's face paler than ever, and when he looks at me, it only gets worse. Don't, he says in a whimper. And that's when I notice that my hands have been replaced with fists. But it's too late. I'm already remembering the too many times I've witnessed this. My brother's face pushed into the mud, his glasses broke, pee in his pants, nose bleeding, his backpack inside out and used as a soccer ball, his knees scraped, weak and wobbling, chipped teeth, whimpering, wailing, pleading, bleeding and blubbering. And I just can't take it. That's my brother, man, my twin and my roommate since day one. Get off him, cop, I say. But the cop seems only amused by this. Not amused after all, huh? He, he laughs. Please, repeat that for me. I take a step closer and say, I said get off. Just wait your turn, the cop says, pointing a finger at me like a gun. You're next. I half expect him to make a pachoo, pachoo sound at me. But he did nothing wrong. Wade cries into the marble floor. But the cop's already drifting too far into dirty hairy land. He makes his voice low and mean and feeds me the mandatory one-liner. Nothing talks like that but a weed whacker or a meth head, he says, and I don't see no damn pole start. Oh man, what a line. I can't help but want to laugh at a line like that. I want to just open my mouth and blast him with a laugh. But that's the worst kind of thing you can do to a cop, to anyone who's trying to be taken seriously for that matter, and I know it. But what option do I have? I'm too primed to care. Of all things, Wade's list on the refrigerator comes to mind. What might it say about this given situation? What instructions might I find written there? As I wonder this, I look at my brother lying there on the concrete, and would you believe it if I told you he answered me without moving his lips? 
Sure, there are identical twins that share cosmic connections, twins that finish each other's sentences, twins separated at birth who grow up strangers, but both name their dog Scruffy or drive the same car, twins whose neurons transmit and receive information in ways that defy science. But Wade and I have never experienced anything like that. Never once up until this moment, at least, because now suddenly all at once it's happening, and I get it. I turn to the cop and speak as softly as possible, my voice barely modulating or rasping. What I say? I keep my words short, sweet, logical. I patiently go through the sequence of events that led us here and explain the situation. I reason. I implore to the cop's sense of humanity and kindness. Sundays must get pretty boring down here, I tell him. I tell him a lot of things, and he listens. He actually hears me. When his eyebrows crest above his sunglasses, that's how I know. Thanks for listening to Blight, Stories in the Key of Decay and Repair. As always, follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Blight Stories. We have t-shirts. We have records. Supporters of independent press keep the story alive. Playing us out today is a new song by Ian Salmon. Ian did music and sound design for this episode of Blight, as well as others. Ian is at work on his debut solo EP and is sharing versions of those songs here on Blight and on his band camp. Here is Wild. Out into the tall night Walking through this field Wild wind screaming Are we there? I am not listening He falls through the ceiling And now we're lost And now I'm lost Only a few more steps back Only a few more steps back Each other